Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. So there was once this guy. He was a nice guy. He had a lot of friends. He had great family. He had money in the bank. He had a lot going for him. That is until one day he lost everything. And when he lost everything, it happened in such a way that it would be hard for anyone who saw it, not to think that this was, this was some sort of divine punishment. But there was something more going on that he and his friends were not aware of, more than meets the eye. While he never got the answer to his question, why did all of this happen to me, he did move on from this experience. He was humbled. He did grow in his faith, and eventually he was restored and received twice as many blessings in his life. Who am I talking about? That's right. I'm talking about the epic story of Job and a biblical book of wisdom that addresses the problem of evil and how we should live in light of its truths. What we are to understand when unexpected tragedies occur in our lives That is the next stop in our Advent series, Unexpected, Waiting on God When Our Plans Fall Apart. Because if anyone knows about their plans falling apart, it's Job. And so to begin with, uh, I'd like to show you a video this morning that captures Job's story really well. And I think helps us to understand how the book of Job fits into this wisdom literature genre of the Bible here in the Old Testament. So... Let's watch this video. It's a very creative summary of Job by the Bible Project. And then we'll dig a little bit deeper into the story and see what it teaches us. Let's watch this. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes who observes, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, Yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, Okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. 
Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter three, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. 
he never learned why he suffered. And yet, he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends. Because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life, and you need to hear all of them together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. What a story. So we've listened to the unexpected events that uh, befall Job, how he processed it and how God responds. But before we revisit a few places in his life and think more deeply about what he had experienced, I'd like to first address some misapplications that we often make from this story. Think with me about the lessons and theological truths that many have derived from Job, but I think are actually misguided and miss the whole point of Job's story. The first one is this. Some think that everything bad that happens is because God wanted or allowed it. Now someone might say, isn't God in control? And isn't he sovereign over everything? And doesn't Satan ask God's permission to hurt Job and and then God gives it to him? Isn't that how it works? So why isn't it accurate to say that everything bad that happens is because God wanted or allowed it? Well, first, let's think about this part of the story where uh, the Satan, a renegade angel who is not part of the divine council in heaven, comes to God after having looked for proof on the earth that God is not just and he's not worthy to be worshipped, evidence of what he himself already believes. Uh, This scene happens in the prologue of this ancient dramatic poem. And it's important to know that it works in similar ways to a parable. Think about this with me. We're not meant to press for literal details. And when we do, we're not reading this story according to its its genre and in, in its own terms. For example, you don't stop Jesus in the middle of him telling the parable of the prodigal son and ask him, Jesus, what was the older brother's name? <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It misses the point. In other words, the opening scene of Job is there to help us to see that there are things going on behind the scenes that we're unaware of on a regular basis. So the purpose of the prologue is to give us a look behind the curtain. That is to say that we're given a glimpse into the unseen cosmic struggle, which is real, but no one has actually ever seen, not even the writer of the book of Job. Instead, it's there to set up the real point or points of the story so that we can learn from it. So let's not lose sight of that. Therefore, the book of Job is showing us that there is so much that we don't know, that we don't understand about what God contends with, but we can know that God is for us and not against us. We'll see this by the end of the story today. 
That's what we need to know about sovereignty. One of the lessons of Job is that God being in control doesn't mean that he does everything, causes everything, or wants bad stuff to happen. No, it's quite the opposite of that. So if our understanding of God's sovereignty looks like a, a huge bicep coming out of heaven instead of a, of a cross, uh, where you know God is pulling all of the switches and overriding free will like he's the Wizard of Oz or something, then, then we need to change our thinking. And the book of Job calls us to do this. The second misapplication is that God is the one who takes people or things away from us. And let's be specific, that God actually causes people's deaths. Well, how many times have we heard this? Or, or even maybe said it ourselves. God, for example, took my husband away from me. Or maybe a softer version, God took them to heaven. You know, it's still a troubling way to speak of people dying, even if you soften it like this. As if God is like a human trafficker or, or an abductor who comes in and steals one of your children or something. Think about this. I mean, really think about it. Where does this come from? Well, it comes from Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Look what this says. It says, at this, Job got up when he found out what had happened to his, his whole household, to his family. He tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, to be fair to Job, which is why I think the text tells us that he wasn't sinning in saying this, a major theological point of the Old Testament, don't miss this, a major theological point of the Old Testament is that there's only one God, one cosmic power in the universe, and that all other gods are false gods. It's not until the intertestamental period, that is post-exile, that their theology progresses to include the belief that the Satan, which was a title, as they said in the video, becomes a real personal being. That's, that's not until the New Testament that we see that, which Jesus affirms later on as Satan or the devil. And because of that, we see numerous examples in the Old Testament of biblical authors attributing evil to God, or so it would appear that way. At least that is, he's ultimately responsible because he created a free world. If God is the only supernatural power in the universe, that would make sense to why they would see it that way. And that's what Job is doing here. So it's from this text in Job that we get songs like, Blessed Be Your Name. Some of you are familiar with this song. There's a, there's a lyric in it that says, you give and take away. Now, it's a catchy tune like a lot of songs and even a lot of hymns that we sing. But the theology, I submit to you, is not great. So hear me, church. We see in Job's story that this line is really spoken out of ignorance. Job chapter 1, verse 20 to 22 here. It's spoken out of ignorance. The author of Job is not inviting us to affirm this sentiment. Listen, but instead to, to see as the story unfolds that it's not true about God. <laughs> Bizarre, right? We got to read the Bible more carefully. Because if anyone takes away here in this story, that is, if, if anyone is stealing, killing, and destroying, well, it's not God. It is rather the Satan, who we know as the devil. And Jesus tells us this in John 10.10. 10. 
And then the third major misuse and misapplication of Job's story is this. Bad things happen, some say, because of something we've done or to teach us a lesson. For example, someone dies or there's a divorce or there's pain in our lives. There's hurricanes, pandemics, and so forth. Well, that's true to an extent. For example, if I live recklessly and disregard God's will for my life, as Paul says to the Galatians, I will reap what I sow. That's true. That's certainly a biblical principle. Having said that, God is good. God is gracious and merciful. He can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Amen? That's a biblical truth. But it's also true that unless we've been given some special divine insight, which can happen, but, it, but it's rare, that something bad happened because of this or that that we might say, or, or the other thing, that the Bible, particularly Jesus, says it's not wise to claim you know why something evil has occurred. Knowing the reason why isn't for Jesus nearly as important as how we respond to it. Much in life is a mystery, but what we can control and can know and do something about is how we respond. But I submit to you that we often do this out of a distorted view of God's sovereignty. Uh, we, we say, like, everything happens for a reason, as if God caused it or God wanted it. I think a lot of times that's what people mean. And so, of course, when I hear people say everything happens for a reason, I, I want to respond with, well, sometimes that reason is because you made a poor choice. <laughs> but it's true. It's true that this view of God's sovereignty isn't quite accurate. And because we don't like to live with ambiguity and not knowing why, we sometimes resort to this kind of belief and thinking. So, for example, we've heard of pastors saying insensitive things to parishioners who can't get pregnant. So women who, who can't get pregnant, and, and, they, and they've tried for many years. And, and someone might say insensitively, what is God trying to teach you through this? Maybe there's something he wants you to pay attention to or something that you're doing or not doing. And folks, let me say, while I believe that God wants to teach us in everything, and he can teach us something in everything, this unfortunately implies, when we say things like this, that God is holding back on them, that he's making it so that they can't conceive. So God is the one who's injuring them in this way. And folks, it's words like this, informed by bad theology, that has caused so much harm to those grieving like Job. And so we need to learn this from Job's friends, that this is not the way to think about God and to think about evil in the world. If you go and read Job chapters 4 through 37, a big chunk of the book, you can hear the pitiful and soul-crushing words from Job's friends who make matters worse with their bad theology and words shared out of their own false assumptions about God and out of their own frustration with the situation and their fears that this calamity could actually happen to them. I mean, surely God would never let someone as righteous as Job go through so much loss and pain. If this happened to Job, what might happen to us? They're thinking that. Job must have done something wrong. So this is what they have to conclude. And so they press Job. And the more Job cries out in anguish, right out of this, his own frustration because the people are being cold and heartless, these people that are close to him, the only people he has left, the more impatient his friends get with Job, pressing him even more. I mean, think about it. Job didn't have a lot of support. Even his wife 
would tell him he should just forget his dignity and curse God and, and die. So Job's response in the beginning of this unexpected tragedy in his life was firm, and it appeared, you know, he's strong in his faith. Uh, with someone who had a view like Job's friends, you might look at that and say, oh, what a righteous person for responding this way. But the author wants us to notice something. Job's theology, though some might think it glorious and wise to say that God gives and he takes away, praise be the name of God, wasn't entirely accurate, as I already said, and that he's also not being totally honest with his feelings. And so give it some time, and his feelings actually start to come out in chapter 9. Let's look at that. Chapter 9, verse 14 through 18. How then can I dispute with him? He's, he's responding to his friends, and he's talking about God. How can I find words to argue with God? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. Look at verse 17. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. You can hear the bitterness in there now. In verse 18, he would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. So it comes out now. How Job is really feeling about this whole thing. He, he's upset with God, rightfully so, right? At, at least according to his thinking. In the next chapter, chapter 10, he says things like this to God. Are you enjoying this? Did you create me for this purpose, to watch me waste away like this? He says, I feel like you're, you're just toying with me like some kind of lion, lion that is toying with its prey. He goes on to say, if I'm guilty, fine, I'll accept it, I'll admit to it. But I've done nothing wrong, and so your treatment of the righteous and the wicked, it sure seems arbitrary, God. And Job says, why did you even allow me to exist in the first place? I should have never been born. And Job's friends, they just keep piling it on, making it worse. Each time Job responds, he says more and more out of his hurt and his pain, convinced now that God must be angry with him. He wants nothing more than to die. All was well with me, he said, but God shattered me. He seized me by the neck and he crushed me, he tells us. People look at the way I've been treated and they think I'm guilty. So go on, God, just kill me, please, Job says. Now, After hearing more nonsense from his friends, Job insists that he has every right to feel the way that he does. From there, he eventually begins to remember the way things used to be when things were going well, when everything was right in his life. And for a moment, he, you know, he longs for what once was, but then he quickly returns to his lament. God, will you just let me waste away and say nothing? You're just going to let me sit here in silence in my, ministry, my misery and die? And then Job lists all the ways that he has been righteous and all the good that he's done, all the times that he's sacrificed for God. How then can God just uh, be, how, can he, how can he be just? How can he be good in allowing all of these things to happen? Then after several chapters of listening to Job's friends preach at him about how God would only allow or cause such terrible things to happen to someone who had really done something wrong or, or was deserving of it, the Lord himself has finally had enough and he speaks. Job chapter 38, verse 1 through 3, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. 
Now, God responds to Job saying things like, like this. Job, where were you when I created the world and everything in it? Have you ever caused a sun to rise and set? Can you do that? Do you have anything to do with the seasons and the weather? Can you hold the constellations in the width of your hand? Do you sustain all of life and enable the world to turn and the cosmos to remain in existence? Can you sustain the cosmos, Job? I do that, Job. And look, it's a big universe, God tells him. There, there are a lot of moving parts that you don't understand. And, and I've never been one to manipulate, control, and force my will on you or the rest of the world. It's messy, I know. But that's the way that it is. That's the necessary risk and consequence of creating a world out of love. And God says to Job, so would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? What is God doing? Why why does the author include these words from the Lord? Here's what it is. It is to highlight our human ignorance of the complexity of the cosmos, as well as the chaos and opposition that God must contend with in a free creation. And to be clear, God doesn't say these things in mockery of Job. Instead, to say this, Job, I created everything that your eyes see. So how is it with a world as magnificent and as complex as that, too wonderful for you to comprehend, that you expect me to help you understand why things happen the way that they do. Even if I could, Job, would it really change the way that you feel? Really, Job? And finally, Job responds this way. In chapter 42, verse 3 and 6, he said, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Therefore, I despise, I'm ashamed of myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, if this were a test, certainly it must have felt that way to Job, then Job passed it. But not because his theology was perfect, or that he was entirely blameless in his suffering, but because he does not reject God despite his broken theology, despite the holes in his thinking and his worldview, and despite his false assumptions and his doubts about God, Job still holds fast to his faith, his faith, and God rewards him. Not even his impious ranting and complaining was too much for God, nor did it disqualify Job from being righteous in God's eyes. You see, there's a way to complain. There's a way to voice our, our pain to God in a way that God hears us. In fact, as a professor of mine once said, think about this, it wasn't until Job started to lament and complain to God that he truly began to live. You see, church, it was then that God looked down and said, yes, that's it. Now you're being true to yourself. Now you're letting what's in you come out of you. That groaning for what is right, just, and fair. The the recognition that something isn't right. 
I honor that, Job. That's what real faith is made of. And it's ultimately what leads to justice, these groanings from within. Now you know how I feel. And we saw in the video and can read in the final verses of Job, God blesses Job after that and Job's view on who he is, what he has, why he has it, and the precious gift that is life has been radically transformed in his view. His view of God, of suffering and justice has been forever changed. And so let's talk about some of the lessons we, the readers, can glean from Job. Real quick, some lessons from Job about the problem of suffering. First, we see that humans are free creatures. We, we, we make our own decisions, and God lets us do that. We see that angels, Satan, and demons are also free. So there are free agents in the unseen realms as well as free agents on earth. We also see that creation has been impacted by rebellious wills. And so it's safe to assume that whatever happens or appears contradictory to the character of God revealed in Christ ultimately comes from human or angelic, that is, demonic agents who oppose God's will for creation. A creation, the Bible tells us, that groans in travail and cries out for its freedom from decay. We also see that we are caught in a cosmic struggle within a complex world. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 that we battle not against flesh and blood. We also see that ambiguity may abound, but God is not to blame. Lamentations 3.33, when Jeremiah laments, he says that God does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. And lastly, we can We can ask God why and still trust in his good character. That is that God blesses those who doubt and yet believe. Like Job, part of actualizing faith is to wrestle with our doubts. In fact, I would say that you can't have faith without also having doubts. Of course, I think we have to acknowledge that our portrait of God and our understanding of the problem of pain and suffering is not complete without the incarnation of God in Christ. Like any good Christ-centered sermon, we need to filter and factor in what the revelation of Christ does to fulfill, revise, and ultimately complete our understanding of Old Testament stories. So, what light does Jesus shine on these things? Well, in Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus says that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Therefore, Jesus affirms that we we can't go along with the thinking that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. The world is far too complex for that. And then in Luke chapter 13, verses 2 through 5, Jesus uses two examples that speak to what we're to think when bad things happen. Jesus says there was uh, some Galileans that had been rounded up by Pilate and, and actually killed in the temple and their blood mixed with the sacrifices. And then he uses another example. There were apparently was a tower that had recently fallen and killed 18 innocent people. And on both accounts, Jesus says that those who died weren't more guilty than the persons who watched it happen. Jesus says, So, in light of that, you best be repenting while you can and get your hearts right. Really, everything about Jesus' ministry revealed that God is not in the business of arbitrarily smiting people, 
but rather he is rebuking his disciples for wanting to call down fire from heaven. He is opening the eyes of the blind. He's making the lame walk, lame people who some thought that were that way because of their sins or their parents' sins. And furthermore, our understanding of what God is doing about evil and the reason we can trust him isn't fully complete without the death and resurrection of Jesus. Which is why the Apostle Paul is going on about this sort of thing in Romans chapter 8. Listen as I read Romans 8, 18 through 39 from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Listen to this in contemporary language. If we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, verse 26, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Verse 29, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his, his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. Verse 31, so what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us.
Hallelujah. So brothers and sisters, let's join with the book of Job and affirm that while we might not know why everything happens the way that it does, we can trust our wise God. And then let's affirm that, that we get the truest portrait of our wise God from Jesus of Nazareth, whose birth we will celebrate next week. And as my friend Greg Boyd has written, he said, we must with confidence anchor ourselves in what we can know, that God looks like Jesus and simply confess ignorance about everything else. You know, that reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And folks, that is enough. Finally, before we end with our Advent 3 reflection, I want to recommend a couple books to you over the holiday break. Uh, the first one is Greg Boyd's book, which I just quoted from, called Is God to Blame? Beyond Pat Answers to the Problem of Suffering. I highly recommend this book as a book that helps us to rethink our understanding of God's sovereignty and the problem of evil, if that's where you find yourself today. And the second book is N.T. Wright's book, God and the Pandemic, a Christian reflection on the coronavirus and its aftermath. A really short, readable book I'd encourage you to get. Wright addresses the pandemic. Where is God in it? He addresses that, and how should we respond? And he calls us to pray and to lament. He even mentions Job. All right, let's close with a time of reflection on the message today. What does this story teach us about God? I think it teaches us that God is dealing with a complex creation in a cosmic struggle. We live in the middle of a war-torn creation, a fallen world, where things are going on behind the scenes of which we don't see. And God is working according to the rules of love. But what he does promise us, as we saw last week, is that he can work all things together for our good if we love God and are following his calling on our life. The second thing, what does this story teach us about ourselves? It says that it's important to lament, and it's important to tell God how we really feel in our grief. Don't keep up any false pretenses. You know, get real. Remember, we're not really living or growing in our faith if we're not honest with God about our feelings. In his book, God in the Pandemic, N.T. Wright says, if we spend time in the prayer of lament, new light may come. Rather than simply the repetition of things we might have wanted to say anyway. Folks, I want new light through everything we've experienced this year. I'm sure you do as well. In order to get that new light, Tom Wright says, we need to learn to lament properly. Let it bubble up from deep within, as we saw with Job, and then let God respond. Lastly, what does this story teach us about how we should live? I think it says that when we encounter unexpected tragedies, we can live like God is with us and for us. Church, how freeing is it to know that God is not the cause of evil, that God is not the cause of our pain and our suffering, that he isn't the one who takes away and robs us of our joy. You see, when we accept this, 
then we can more easily go to God when we have a need, when we are hurt, when we experience pain and suffering, when we experience unexpected tragedies in our life. We can go to him and we can even partner with him at this point in bringing about more of the kingdom. This is why the message of Job is so, so important for us today. And I encourage you to take it to heart. God is good all the time. God is good. I hope that this message leads you to the God who looks like Jesus so that we can do the same for others. Be blessed, church.